Thank you for listening to this Reading the Bible Together podcast, available thanks to your support. Welcome to Reading the Bible Together. I'm your host, Angela Smith. So if we ignore this subject, if we ignore God's plan for the end of the age, we're ignoring a big hunk of scripture. He's given us a lot of details about the end. And remember, the study of the end is very fascinating, right? You know, timelines and charts and what's the next event. Everybody wants to know the future. But we really do it, what we were just talking about, so that we know the planner even Mm. more. Mm. But uh, Paul says to Titus, while we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our hope, and it's really a study of our hope. Today, we are talking about Mark chapters 11 through 13, and actually, we're going to be focusing mostly on Mark 13. And joining me is someone that you've heard in one of our past series, Jeff Verdorn. Jeff has an infectious passion for studying the Bible and has been teaching Bible studies for over 25 years. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. My, I, I mean, the reason I asked you, it was so evident from the moment I asked you about Mark and you took your Bible open and, oh, there's so many interesting things in here and you got all excited just from me asking. So I'm so, so grateful you said yes. It's a parallel passage with uh, one of my favorite chapters as it relates to the end times, because I I love talking about the end times. I love studying God's plan for the end of the age, and that is Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is actually a a bit longer, a little bit more robust. It's got a few more details, but Matthew 24 and Mark 13 are very parallel to each other. So I love this chapter. Awesome. Well, before we get into that conversation, just as a way for listeners to get to know you a little bit better— where do you experience the presence of God? Wow, this is a, actually a pretty big question to start with. Um, I think the first and foremost uh, way that I experience uh, the presence of God or being close to God is by the study of God's Word. I think if, if you want to experience the true God, uh, you have to know the true God. And I think one of the primary ways we come to know the true God is by the study of of his word. I mean, I uh, over the 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 years, I can't tell you how many aha moments that I've had in the study of God's word. I'm sure you have a whole bunch of them. Every person, every Christian who's ever studied God's word has these aha moments like, "Oh, this is so cool." And when I find those, I love to share those with people and I get excited to to share with people what I found. And so, um that's uh, if you know, if you're going to trust somebody, the more you know them, the more you can trust them as long as they prove trustworthy. And I think that's what God's word uh, does. Um, probably the, the other way, just if I can, mm-hmm. um, is in worship. I think worship is one of those ways that we um, can draw close to God. If, if the study of God's word is more of an intellectual pursuit of understanding God, there is a, an emotional pursuit of God in worship. And I, I tell you, there's a there's a few songs where the lines of these songs, every time I hear them, they just, they touch my heart. Uh, one of them is from that song, uh, The Goodness of God, and mm. it's, it's extra special to me because my, my youngest son actually sang it at my daughter's wedding. Mm. And, but there's a line in that song, and it, it almost brings me to tears every time I hear that song. And it's, all my life, you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so 
so good. Mm. And it's just, it touches my heart. I love that. And I think we all experience God in different ways. And so that's why I'm, I'm asking that question. But that that's so great because I think you're exactly right. Knowing God, knowing who God is, letting his word define who he is, is so important. Because I think as we experience hardships in life, it can be tempting to let those inform how we view God versus what he says about himself. Absolutely. And to know his word is to know him. Yeah, so good. We were talking about this just a touch before we started uh, started chatting here on the show, but so you've not only been doing Bible studies, teaching Bible studies, but you've also specifically on end times. And I just want to acknowledge that end time studies is not my go-to. And I am of a personality where I don't like pain. There were, I went through a, a few years ago, I was I really had to pray that that God would make me comfortable in the uncomfortable because comfort was was a deciding factor for me. Like, oh, I, I don't feel comfortable. This must not be where God is leading. When actually, I think it's actually the opposite. <laughs> when we're feeling a little uncomfortable, that's actually probably where God is leading you. And so I'm going, but also this is part of God's word. This is part of what's going to happen. And so this is something that even though I just want to acknowledge my discomfort, because I know there are those listening who feel that way too, that it's still something that we need to push into and to study. So I just want you to know that from the get-go. <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, when I teach this class, I often get this question. Um, I ask for expectations of this class that I teach called the Study of the End Times. It's a one-semester class. I do it every couple of years or so at my church. And almost every time someone asks a question like, what would you say to those who fear the end times? And I respond, well, then you don't understand the end times because the end times is the back of the book. And guess what? I've read the back of the book. We win. We are victorious. Jesus comes and establishes his rule and reign, and and we win. One of my first serious Bible studies 30-plus years ago now was a three-year study on the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. Mm. About a third of the Bible is prophetic, and much of that is about God's plan for the end of the age. So if we ignore this subject, if we ignore God's plan for the end of the age, we're ignoring a big hunk of scripture. He's given us a lot of details about the end. And remember, the study of the end is very fascinating, right? You know, timelines and charts and what's the next event. Everybody wants to know the future. But we really do it, what we were just talking about, so that we know the planner even Mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. But Uh, Paul says to Titus, while we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this is our hope, and it's really a study of our hope. Well, and like Hebrew says about Jesus, because of the hope set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was in between the whole, you know, he knew what was coming, and so he could endure. And so I pre- like I appreciate Paul's letters and and hearing I mean Paul's writing from prison he's he's writing from these very hard places and spaces about being content in the Lord and I, I think if we can keep that focus like you're saying on on the hope on the planner not the plan that's such a good word that that's that's where we can put our hope. You know, Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, our light and momentary troubles are nothing compared to the surpassing 
glory that is to come or something like that. I think it's in 1 Corinthians someplace. And, and what does that tell us? It tells us that any trouble, any trials, because Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. You will. Yes, it's mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians have been persecuted since the since the since when the church was founded, and we will continue to be persecuted and, and experience trials and tribulations. We live in a, a fallen world, and bad stuff happens. That's just how it is. Um, but when you understand God's plan for the end of the age, and we have an internal glory, an inheritance waiting for us, mm-hmm. and when we live with the end in mind and we understand, I think a lot of people have this idea that we're going to be floating around on a cloud playing a harp or something for all of eternity. No, 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 no. There's a lot of details that God has given us about the kingdom to come. And it makes me really excited. And so when we live with the end in mind, it makes our troubles today passing and fleeting. Mm-hmm. And as Paul said, light and momentary. Now, I, I, there's a lot of issues that Christians go through all the time that don't seem light and momentary right. in the moment. But in terms of eternity, yes, that's how Paul describes them. So let's dig into Mark chapter 13. Where where would you like to start? Well, let's start with this uh, first kind of high-level understanding comment, and that is when you look at Mark 13 and Matthew 24, the parallel passage uh, that's in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew 24, um, how we interpret these chapters is going to determine whether or not you're going to conclude are all of these events that Jesus is describing yet future? Are they yet to come upon the world? So he's going to talk about these wars and rumors of wars and abomination and this Antichrist who comes and, and, uh, and then he comes at the second coming. Israel has to flee and so on. We'll talk about some of those today. Um, are those all yet future or were they all fulfilled in and around 70 AD? And towards the end of the chapter, there's this thing called this generation. This right, generation it's in verse will, 30. That was, yep. in, yes. And so at the end of the chapter, we'll, and we'll talk about that maybe when we get to the end of the chapter, but how you view, what you decide is this generation is going to determine whether or not you believe these events are yet future. So all the events of Revelation are yet future or, and many in the church have concluded this, these events were fulfilled in and around 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem, and they are called preterists. So preterism, past, it's already happened, or it's yet future. I fall firmly in the futurist camp that these are events that are yet to come upon the world. Okay. So in verse 9, after talking about wars and earthquakes and people saying that they are the Messiah, but Jesus is saying they're not the Messiah, he talks about what will happen to the disciples. He says, you'll be handed over to the local council and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand a trial before governors and kings because you're my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. And it makes me think of the relationship of suffering. And I heard Dr. A.J. Swoboda talk recently about the importance of long suffering. And he pointed out that life didn't get easier for the disciples the longer they followed Jesus. In fact, it got harder for them. And uh, from a from the commentary that I've been using for this series, a Jesus story by uh, commentary on the book of Mark by Timothy Gombus. It says, Jesus's concerns are pastoral as he warns his disciples and subsequent audiences, that would be us, about what they will face in the future. In the midst of an age that will be filled with horrific events that will feel like the world is ending and in which disciples will be persecuted, they are to remain faithful and watchful so that 
so that they are shaken. I think it's so that they are not shaken. I may have typed mm-hmm. that wrong. Mm-hmm. But that idea of holding so firmly to the planner huh. so that the plans don't make us shake. Yeah. What do you have to say about that? So th- this is there are two aspects to the persecution that that Jesus is describing that will come. First is the the immediate persecution that we know uh, all the disciples and the early church, for that matter, is going to face and going to experience. We we know that the first century was not an easy time to be a Christian. We know that all the apostles, uh, except for John, who probably died of old age on the island of Patmos, were probably killed or martyred for their faith. So uh, being a Christian in the first century was tough. But two, it's also describing this future tribulation which is going to come upon the nation of Israel. This is Daniel's 70th seven. This is Daniel 9 stuff. This is what Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the seven-year judgment of God that he has proclaimed upon uh, the nation of Israel. This is what people commonly call the tribulation. So while that, I think, is the primary view, the disciples are obviously hearing this and are going to face this immediate persecution. You know, when it comes to persecution— I, Acts chapter 5 is, is a very neat chapter. In this chapter, the apostles are preaching Jesus. They're arrested by the high priest and the Sadducees. They got all jealous about these apostles, and they have them arrested, verse 18 in Acts chapter 5. But an angel comes and frees them all, and they go out, and the angel says, go back and preach Jesus some more. So they go back again and are in the temple court area preaching Jesus. Well, the, all the council gets all upset again and has them arrested again, and And they say, verse 28, we had strict orders. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name anymore. And Peter says this. He says, shall we obey God rather than men? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him to the right hand as prince and savior uh, to grant repentance for the nation of Israel. Well, the Sadducees were enraged. Here, Peter is basically saying, you killed this Messiah. And they wanted to kill them all. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel stops them and says, if this is from God, there'll be no stopping this. Mm. So why don't you just let them go? Well, they couldn't just let them go. They had them beaten and then they let them go. Now, here's the line I'm getting, getting to, verse 41 in Acts chapter 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name of Jesus. I mean, I don't know about you, but my first reaction, if I've just got beaten up and and tormented for preaching the name of Jesus, I don't know that I would be rejoicing. And that's that, you remember that line in James, it's James chapter one, it says, consider it pure Pure joy, joy, brothers, Mm -hmm. when you face all kinds of trouble. Um, on account of my name. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, right? Jesus said, if I was persecuted, you also will be persecuted. And anyone who wants to live a godly life in this world will be persecuted, God promises. So look, the more you let the light shine, the more the world is going to try to fling mud at, at that bright light. Uh, And yet, God still calls us to shine bright in this world. Let our light shine before men. And I think this is part of our sanctification process, our process of becoming more like Christ, that 
you know, when we we first start following him, it's, you know, at least for my in my experience, like amazing that he is personal. You know, I knew who God was, but I didn't know that I could know him personally. And it's I've followed him for the last thirty years, and it's taken all. It's been a long process of realizing, okay, when I go through a trial, when I, you know, my husband and I went through infertility, we went through miscarriages, and I remember my first miscarriage thinking okay, Lord, this is something you're going to use, which actually I think is the Holy Spirit like giving me the gift of that perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think the longer we walk with him and the more we see him come through, I think, which is like the Israelites putting up Ebenezer stones, stones of remem- remembrance, because we forget easily. But the more we're reminded and the more we experience God's faithfulness and him taking that suffering and making good, you know, that it's purposeful. It's not just pain for pain's sake. It's there's a purpose to it. I think that is maybe being on the road to this, that having an understanding of viewpoint that's, you know, our viewpoint is like a pinhole Mm -hmm. to God's viewpoint that is so vast. But if we can relinquish our pinhole view for his long view and realize, okay, he's, he's doing something here and I get to be a part of it. What a privilege, even when it's suffering. You know, I think that is the eternal view that we were talking about at the start of the program. When you have an eternal view, then our troubles in comparison to eternity become light and momentary. You know, what you just described, Paul, in, in Romans 5, it says our suffering produces character, perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Um, you, you know, I've met some people around the world, Christians, who have watched their husbands or their children, you know, murdered in front of their eyes because of their faith by governments that are not friendly to Christians. And I met these people. One woman from Vietnam, she was about four and a half feet tall. She was very, very small, but her faith was giant. I don't know. I I didn't have as much faith as she has in my little finger. I mean, Mm -hmm. in her little finger. I mean, what she has gone through and therefore how she is able to trust in God is just is beyond what I think I can even imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I, yeah, that's, that's. So that's I so think good. your view, I think suffering is part of the sanctification process for many. It, you, you don't have to, I often have prayed, Lord, get me there without experiencing <laughs> yeah. the persecution and the suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in the United States of America, we don't suffer like a lot of people around the world, but Correct. but you know what? Things are changing, and I, I, you know, we are becoming a smaller and smaller voice in this country. And I think we can start envisioning how maybe the rest of Christians have dealt uh, with persecution throughout the centuries. Right, and I think to keep the long view of again our eyes on the planner, not on the plan. If we keep our eyes fixed on on Jesus, yep. and not on not letting fear come in because I think that can in, in, kind of invoke fear. Correct. No people. fear. I yeah. don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds mm-hmm. tomorrow. I yep. love that line. Yep. I, it's not just a trite saying. It's it's uh, theologically actually very significant. And remember, he. what's that great promise in Romans 8? He's working all things 
for good for those who love him. I mean, that is a wonderful, amazing promise that everything, his will will be done in the end. I've read the back of the book. We win. (laughs) So we only have a few minutes left and I want to make sure that we get to verse 30 where it talks about this generation. So let's talk about about that on verse 30. Yeah. So like I mentioned at the beginning, how you see or what you determine is this generation uh, is is actually significant to how you're going to see God's plan for the end of the age. There's really three different views of this, how people define this generation. The first is this group of preterists that I was talking about earlier. They believe all this was fi- fulfilled in and around 70 AD. So they believe that this generation is the generation that is hearing Jesus speak these words. And therefore, everything that he's talking about is going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. Well, if you look at the specific events, they weren't fulfilled in 70 AD. Even though 70 AD was a terrible time for Israel, their city was destroyed, their temple was knocked down, not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus prophesies Mm -hmm. in this chapter, right, at the very beginning of this chapter. Uh, the rest of the stuff that he's talking about did not happen. Uh, so so I am a futurist. Now, the futurists actually have two different views as well. Um, the first futurist view says that this generation uh, is the generation that sees the fig tree blossom or the leaves coming out of the fig tree, and they equate the fig tree with Israel. And therefore, if you look at Israel being reborn, which was they became a nation in 1948, and then they recaptured Jerusalem in 1967, they argue that that based on those dates, we can count out a generation and we know when the end time is coming. Well, I don't agree with that view. I, I don't think we can know when the end is going to come. Jesus said very clean, uh, plainly that we cannot know the hour of the day. He says he comes as a thief in the night. Well, He's that gonna, he doesn't know. The it, hour of the day. There is a passage that says only God knows mm-hmm. when this time is going to come upon the world. So I don't think it can be used to try to predict or set. So I don't I don't think the fig tree here represents Israel. I think Jesus is just saying it's obvious when you see these signs, mm-hmm. when the tree starts budding, it's obvious that summer is near. I think it's just that simple, mm-hmm. right? So what he is saying is all of these events that he's just described in this chapter, the abomination of desolation, Israel fleeing, and so on. He says, when you see these things, then it is right at the door. What is it? Jesus's second coming. So I think this generation is the generation, just as the passage says, that sees these things. This generation is the generation that sees all the events that Jesus talks about. Let me read the verse, 30. When you see all these things, know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, the generation that sees these things take place, will certainly not pass away until all these things happen. Why? Because Jesus' second coming is within seven years of all of these events. In fact, after you see the abomination, we know from Daniel 9, by the way, The abomination is in the middle of that seven-year period. So when you see an abomination of desolation in the temple of God, as described by Jesus and Daniel, and actually Paul just talks about this event as well, you know that Jesus' second coming is near. It's only three and a half years away. This generation that sees these things will not pass away until it 
comes, the second coming comes. That's what I think this generation represents. That's so good. Because even I like to go back to the Greek, and I was trying to figure out what does this generation mean? What does that Greek word mean? Mm -hmm. And there were a variety of meanings for that. So (laughs) It is one of the, if you want to look at, uh, how many commentators comment on this past this phrase, this generation? Uh, this is a big one because, like I said at the beginning, how you define this generation is going to determine whether or not you're going to be a futurist or a preterist when it comes to all the end time stuff, uh, which much of the detail is here. More detail is in the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. but you can actually find information about the end time all over Scripture. Yeah. Jeff Redorn, thank you so much. The thing I think I'm going to take away the most is... Knowing the plan, but following the planner. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And thank you for joining us for this conversation about the gospel of Mark. And we will see you next time on Reading the Bible Together. Thank you for listening to this conversation on reading the Bible together. These conversations are available because of your support. You can become a supporter now at myfaithradio.com. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes and share it with friends so together we can inspire more people to read the Bible together.